I guess that makes sense. But it's mainly like in a dating context. So oh, so I like see. you know that guy's got riz. It means he like goes talks to the girls and they all go woo. Yeah. Welcome anyway. to Double uh, AA, <laughs> the podcast for two old folks talk about whatever the kids are doing these days. I know. My name's Adam, and I'm 31 years old. <laughs> and I am. You're making me sound old. I'm Alex. I'm 36. All right, let's start. I'm the, d- literally a dried pile of bones in manga context, so oh this is boy. great. <laughs> I was going to say let's start again, but no, let's run with this, because I feel like the comics that we're talking about today, to some degree, are about youth yep. and about young people and what it's like to live in specific time periods. Um, we are going to talk about a book called River's Edge drawn by the comics artist Kyoko Okazaki. Well, um, drawn and written, I think. Drawn and written by Kyoko say. Okazaki, yeah. Uh, Alex, can we pull the dates up for this? Yeah, so, so this came out in 1993 originally right. in, uh, in Japan, but it wasn't really published. It's interesting because the, the, the copyright on the edition that we, I think, both have... Is quite late. It's 2008. That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and it wasn't published... Um, in english until this year 2023 that's true so So. i think there was a copy of river's edge that was floating around the fan translation circuit back in the day but i think it hasn't officially legally been published in english until very very recently yeah although okazaki's stuff has slowly been um coming into english right right slowly and steadily but i think what's what's fascinating is that yeah it was serialized 1993 through 1994 but it wasn't even collected in japan until really? 2008. Oh, that's interesting. So, which it's I funny think it took that long. Interesting. Yeah, because it says, yeah. so in here it says, originally published in Japanese as Reba Zu Eji by Takaraji Masha Inc. Um, yeah. In uh, Monthly Re- Cutie. Reba's Edge, just uh, in Katakana, I think. Right. Is River's Edge. Yeah. Oh, fair. Um, and then it was, then the copyright is 2008. Um, as published, same publisher, but it wasn't until 2008, which is like, that's a long time. Yeah. I mean, it was first serialized in Monthly Cutie, 1993, 1994. Yeah. Takara Incorporated. Right. It's true. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, so briefly about this comic, if you, I'd say you follow my work, who follows my work? If you do follow my work. <laughs> well, if someone's listening to this, yes, they are following your work. Uh, so listening, that's to our, listening to our <laughs> collective podcast, reading my newsletter at Annie Wire. Dot ghost.io you may remember that i wrote a piece about river's edge some weeks ago where i talked about it and uh, its connection to one of my favorite shows of all time Pooly Cooly. if you've read that you may have some idea about what we're about to talk about if you haven't read that and you don't know what we're talking about i guess the way you can describe river's edge is that it is a slice of life yeah r- mellow dr- like really caustic drama about adolescence in high school during the 1990s right yeah i mean it's it's one of those that i think at this point not only have we also i think talked on this podcast about similar or maybe mentioned similar similar things i've certainly have read a lot of things that have been published since then that have this exact same framing of life in high school and drama and tragedy in high school yeah i mean i will say i feel like to me at least River's Edge does have a different sort of feel to it right. than the majority of comics that come out of Japan that are set in high school. Even when you right. consider work that tackles some of the difficult parts of high school as well. Like, for instance, you do have stuff like uh, something like, is it Blue Flag, right? Have you read that one? 
I know. I'm pretty no. sure Soretti is like read to, that. To be clear, I'm thinking more of stuff like Sensei's Pious Lie. Oh, I was waiting for you to yeah. bring up Sensei's Pious Lie. Yeah. <laughs> to, to be clear, I could not stop thinking about okay. Sensei's Pious so Lie. So here, I read here this. we go. So Alex, I'm going <laughs> to ask. So you, I'm going to ask you if it's okay. Yeah. Um. So you, we talked about this before. You came to the world of manga relatively late, right? Because you're like a huge comics fan who's been reading comics forever. I mean, relatively late still is a ways ago. Like, right. I've been in this pool for a while. And when we <laughs> talked about this before, you said that you hadn't, you read like a bunch of different comics in different genres, like Vinland yes. Saga, yes. Uh, stuff like Land of the Lustrous, or um, A Silent Voice, and that sort right. of thing, all kind of in different genres, published to different audiences. I would like to ask, in terms of like what you've read, going through River's Edge, uh, were there any touchstones for you as you were going through it? You mentioned uh, Sensei's Pious Lie, which I think is very on the, is very on point. Like this is absolutely what that particular artist is sort of riffing on. Yeah, but Kanatori Kai. Is there anything else that like stands out? To I you mean, as familiar. It, obviously, like stuff by um, Inio Sano also kind of. Yeah. It, it, it's not quite there, but I think there's some of his stuff hits close to the same disaffection and you know sort of aimlessness of high school life and people kind of figuring themselves out and being confronted by either their own dramas or other people's dramas. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel um, like Asano's work often aims at like a slightly older audience. Or it, yeah. That's sorry. That's not what I mean. I mean, his characters are older, like not in stuff a, like Solon in they're just out of in some of his stuff, but like right. that, the demons did a destruction. They're high schoolers. I guess that's true. Um, and good. Is it goodbye? Pun Pun or goodnight? Pun Pun. Yeah. That one was, well, that's yeah, Pun Pun. They years. do start out as yeah. younger kids. It's true. Um, but then, like, uh, Nijigahara Holograph, I think they're middle schoolers. So oh, he kind right. of he, he, he stretches the, the gamut in, in terms of that. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, so coming to this, you felt like there were some past works you could think of that reminded Correct. you of what Correct. Okazaki was doing. In terms of art style, is there anything that was familiar to you, like, reading through Sailor it? Moon. Sailor Moon? So oh, that's the, interesting. The thing that I thought of the most, I think, artistically. Why? Is it, like, the size of the eyes or the it, designs? Kind of the very flowy, like, lines. Yeah. Very curved, like, very kind of S-shaped people. I don't know how else to put it. Um, right. I mean, if you all you've seen is the anime, that maybe isn't, like, what you should be thinking in terms of Sailor Moon. The manga's style was a little bit different. Yeah. I guess that the characters in the anime are, like, very... It feels like they they have that blobby sensation where yeah, they're constantly yeah. moving around. Like, they're redesigned for TV. I think the new show had was more true to the original manga's yeah. uh, art style, if I remember I mean, it, it's tough because different sorts of art styles are tougher to achieve on right, right. when you're animating them. And I think that the changes they um, made to the designs for the show are probably good ones to make them move. But right. there is an appeal I've heard to the original Sailor Moon comic, like the way they're drawn there, the way they do flow in that way is something you don't get in the show as much. And then the other thing I thought of um, that you may not ask me about is because it, it was more of a, I think it's more of a time it was written kind of thing yeah. was monster. Oh, by Urasawa, yes. which we've also talked about in this podcast. We did. In yeah, which one way? Of first episodes. I think it was just, that they both took place in the 90s. Okay. Or were conceived of in the 90s. Uh, granted, different times in the yeah. 90s, but there's something about that that kind of made me think of it. I think, so River's Edge is a very 90s comic. Right, <laughs> I feel right. like It's tough because, so I should say, I was born in 1992. I feel like my childhood, like 
getting past childhood to where you're like cognizant but not quite an adolescent well you were me, one year old when this comic yeah, was written for me like that was probably <laughs> it was probably like in the 2000s that i was sort of aware of stuff so like this is like right. a little before me in a sense even though i totally get where it comes from do you, I, since i know you're a bit older than me do you feel like this like what you were seeing in the comic was more recognizable to you as someone who'd been through you know, middle so or high school at that time. It's so funny because you asked me, where do I place this in relation to other manga? Right. But what he didn't ask me is where do I place this in relation to other Western comics? Yeah. That's because another question there. There's cause you, you know, speaking of that time, right. Weirdly enough, the vibes that I got from this was actually very similar to a lot of very introspective Western comics, indie comics from the early 2000s. Are there particular folks you can think of? Oh my gosh, not off the top of my head. I should have like dug into this a little bit more to be like, what what exactly? Like I have this like vibe that I just can't put my finger on. So Um, I haven't gotten, I was going to get to this a bit later, but I do want to mention since you brought up uh, comics. um, Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Because uh, this is something that we spoke about in the wake of SBX last right. year, which we're actually coming up on this it's year. It's true. But you I'm blanking me. on the name of the of the of the writer. Uh, but it was this like um, top shelf collection of like, oh um, right, loved and lost. That one. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, I don't remember the author's name. That, but it you think really made me familiar? think of that a lot as well. Well, that's interesting. I still haven't read that one yet, but maybe I maybe I should. In terms of artists who I know are big Okazaki fans. So let's see. So Sloan Sloan Leung and Leslie Hung used to have a podcast called Salt and Honey, and they did an episode on Okazaki stuff back in the day. I'm pretty sure that they're both familiar with their work and are big fans, especially like Leung's recent stuff. Like I feel like you look at, uh, if you read A Map to the Sun, Mm -hmm. her uh, young adult book, that to me has a lot of kind of Okazaki energy in it where it has a lot of characters who have like these difficult backstories or hard to be around. There's a sense that they're like sort of coming together and learning to understand each other, but not in a saturine happy go lucky kind of way, more like they're just living through life. Terrible things happen to them. They have to keep moving, which is very sort of Okazaki to me compared to like a lot of more recent stuff. Probably. I can also think of Kate Skelly, the cartoonist Mm. has a podcast as well called thick lines. And she did an episode in river's edge recently, actually, uh, where she professed to really enjoying it. Like, so, so, like, those artists, I think, are, like, definitely in conversation with what Okazaki was doing. I don't think it's all that they're doing. Like, they have more going on. But it's definitely a strain of work they're aware of. I, I mean, to build on that, I would definitely say that this is one of those works that when you think about when it actually came out, relative to where we are today and yeah. how formative it feels relative to a lot of other work these days... It, it 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 feels more recent than than something you would you would have thought of as in 1993. It's true. Um, so I'm curious, would it help in that case if I bring up some of like the past influences on it, or would you prefer that we talk about like no, I mean, some of the characters? Uh, honestly, Adam, like you know, I think go for it. You know? Okay, so you know when I wrote that newsletter piece, one right. of the things I was thinking about was how many similarities I saw between River's Edge and this anime series, Fooly Cooly, that I love. Right. Uh, Fooly Cooly came out back around 2000, I think. It was made by right. Studio Gainax. There's a book called Fooly Cooly mm-hmm. Noise that's only available in Japanese but has been translated by a bunch of fans online. If you go to the 
AnyWire newsletter. I link them there. You can take a look. Um, they perf- a bunch of the people who worked on that show profess in that interview to being fans of Okazaki's line, as you said, like wanting to draw people in that way. I think it's uh, Sadamoto, the character designer, who mentions that. But also they bring up Moyoko Ano, who's married to Hideaki Ano, the Evangelion director, which is pretty funny. But Kyoko Okazaki and Moyoko Ano were two of the artists who were sort of in this field at that time. Like, Ano, I think, actually apprenticed under Okazaki. She worked for Okazaki as an assistant back in the day and went, went on to draw her own work. And between uh, Moyoko Ano and Kyoko Okazaki, they were sort of creating this new brand of comics for girls that were more introspective, that were telling stories about women in their 20s and 30s who had actual sort of real-life relationships that were complicated rather than sort of living through these romantic fantasies that you saw in a lot of girls' comics at the time. Now, it is a bit more complicated than that. Like, if you look at Fully Cooley and River's Edge, I don't... You, I, don't think you've seen fully Cooley, right? Alex? No, I have. I have. Oh, you have. I have. And, so, and and I actually had the you know, when the moment you mentioned it, I started parsing through my memory to be like what parts of this are like fully Cooley because I don't necessarily like I agree with the comparison, yeah. but fully Cooley also I think ultimately its thesis is very different in some I ways. I think that's probably true. But I can the, the first thing that I thought of is I can recognize that there are specific moments in fully Cooley that they're quiet moments right? where there'll be, there'll be like on a bridge or something, yes. just talking and taking yep. in the scenery. The and that's, ex- and that the happens. Bridge, yes. <laughs> yes. And that's exactly right. That's that right. happens in river's edge and that happens in pink too. Yeah. Like th- so th- pink that's is another very, comic yeah. by Kyoko Okazaki. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I read that leading up to this kind of preparing for this, but I guess but, it's but that's a very Kyoko yeah. Okazaki thing. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Pink being set in like the waning days in the 1980s rather than the 1990s, right. which right. is where river's edge is set. Like pink has this effervescence to it where it's about That's people who are it. sort of like yep. dancing in the city and it's still kind of weird and awful. Like everyone's just trying to get by, and, yeah. but there's this idea that it's sort of fun. Like everyone's having a good time or like the ones who survive are the ones you know how to have a good time, even though like it's difficult in all kinds of other ways. River's edge feels a lot more fatalistic to me. Well, it's after the, you know, the oh, economic sure. bubble, but went, like all, so. <laughs> there are no parents around all of yeah. the architecture you see is totally hollowed out. Right. Uh, the kids are like sleeping with adults to get luxury goods for themselves. But it, there's right. something like, I mean, I don't know. I don't think the book judges the characters for that, but there's no. this kind of malaise or like this horrible energy yeah. to everything where everything just feels cursed. Is it okay? Can I read? And this is diverging no, from what I, I want to talk about. I actually about. have some excerpts that I would like to mention. But later if I as can well, but, yeah. read a monologue from the bridge scene, yep, yep, yep. where uh, Haruna, who's like kind of the, lead, the female lead, right? And then Yamada, who's her friend, they are walking across this bridge. It's a splash page. You have like uh, these lanterns that light everything up. It's like kind of gloomy that characters are smoking. Um,. Yamada and I walk alongside the river. We cross the bridge without saying a word. I read a book yesterday that said an asteroid will hit the Earth in the year 2000 and totally fuck up our ecosystem. We'll be 24 years old by then. They were saying on TV today that in the last 17 years, the ozone layer has been depleted by 5-10%. to The amount of CFCS people have released into the atmosphere is already at 50 million tons. Apparently 10% of that, like 1.5 million tons, has leaked into the stratosphere, destroying the ozone layer. But so what? It doesn't feel real. It doesn't seem real. 
The same goes for walking around of Yamada like this. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't seem real. Um, yep. This book loves monologue. The characters just yes. shoot off all the time. And in fact, the final, each chapter ends with a monologue by Harna, I believe. And, and you know, I, I, I have to say this because leading up to this, so to kind of part the curtain, you and I right. were d- discussing which to talk about, River's Edge or Pink. Yeah. And then I think like, you know, last minute before we recorded, I was like, no, let's do River's Edge. Right. Um, and I'm really glad because having read Pink since, I am... I really have come around to thinking that River's Edge is the more well-rounded, fleshed-out work. Really? And a big part of that, and kind of this is what's relevant to what you're saying, is the way in which I think River's Edge is able to have these very quiet moments surrounding monologue or in some ways a a very sort of poetic, uh, you know, uh, know, uh, line of of, of writing, um, which you don't have in pink because that one is like you said, very effervescent and yeah. it, it's more devil may care in a way that where it doesn't lean into that sort of tragic poetry as much. And it does not feel as complex as a result. I mean, I think it captured the time, right? Right. Absolutely. It, it was right. a time of yeah. decadence. It's yeah. something Okazaki was aware of. Like pink is a book about that and river's edge again. And this is a fascinating thing. So this, the material in this monologue in one way, it's absolutely timeless because it feels like the period we're going through right now is very similar. Like oh, yeah. there are kids who are worried about, um, they're worried about climate change. They're worried about ecological disaster caused by well, humans. The difference is it feels more oh, real now. <laughs> I was, yeah. So it's, it's there, right? There's this sensation that everything is doomed. So I try right. like everything's an illusion. People are just going through life, pretending everything's fine when it's clearly not yeah. like that kind of dissociation, especially when you're a young person doesn't know what's happening. I think is like absolutely key to this book, but, uh, Haruna isn't talking about global warming. She's talking about the ozone layer. Right. She's talking about, ah, yeah, the ozone layer is going to be the thing that gets all of us. Like, it's all going to wear away. We're going to be killed by the ozone layer. We're going to be killed by an asteroid in the year 2000. But we didn't get killed by an asteroid in the year 2000, and it seems like the ozone layer is actually gradually actually, being fixed up. Yes, that, that did actually get human, yeah. human intervention, in but a it, sense. But we, we messed up other stuff, so... Yeah, well. No, it's true. It's, just, it's fascinating <laughs> to me, because... I think this is a paradox of this book, right? Which is on one hand, it absolutely is still relevant, but on the other hand, it's such a an embodiment of its time. Of its time. Yeah. And, and I, I definitely thought the same as I was yeah. reading it. There's um, both in this and in pink, there's a lot of, and I'm, I'm going to have to make sure I'm not like mixing them up, but I think there's a lot of footnotes in both mm. referencing, you know, what the um, pop culture, what right? the pop culture references, because my goodness, not only are they specific to the time, they're very specific to Japan yeah. as well. And if you are not hip to it, uh, pff, go over. It's like head. what they're watching on TV, whatever is right. in the magazines, so the um, famous actors of the time, they just really go into it. Yeah. Which is a great way to establish setting, but, um, but you also don't need to get it necessarily to appreciate the work. Yeah. Either. So it's like the culture that the kids have in this book right. where they're just referencing that sort of thing. Cause that's what kids do. I mean, I guess yeah. Okazaki is someone who is very keyed into whatever was happening at the time. So I think for her, it was important that the teenagers in her books or like the young adults in her books were thinking about this stuff as well. Yeah. So the monologue is one part of this story that reminded me of fully Cooley. Another part, the smokestacks in the factory. That is true. Like this. So I'm, what I'm showing Alex right now is another splash page from this book. Cause Okazaki loves to do these like giant negative space splash pages where there's this, these shadowy factory smokestacks and this white smoke that's coming out. And in Fui Cooley, there's this famous giant, 
hand iron just sitting in the middle of the city in that story that constantly sets off smoke during key moments in the story. So like that was something as well that really leaped out to me. Um, something else, I mean, this is called River's Edge. There's many scenes that are right by the water's edge, right? In, in the same way, it feels like the characters in Fully Cooler are always kind of wandering around by the water. It's like a place where people go to like recover after they've been bullied or when they're just kind of wandering around after school and getting into trouble. I mean, it's a, I think, um, even something like in Fully Cooler, yeah, Mabase, which is sort of this dead end town. And I guess like what we see in River's Edge as well, it feels, I guess it's like an urban environment, but it's one that's decaying again, like we said, where everything's sort of falling to pieces. There's a sense that there is no future for any of the people here and they're all just trying to get by. Even something like we see an old man with a dog and you go, oh, a dog, how cute. But as we find out, the dog smells a corpse that's in the grass right next to the river. And so the dog wants to eat the dead body down there probably. So just there are all these things in this book that on the surface are cute, but when you dig deeper are actually kind of horrible. Well, and I think a big part of that is because it's also, I think, with the topic of rivers and being on the river's edge. Yeah. Because the the, the, the motif that is repeating throughout all this is death. Yes. Um, and I think there's something about the river carrying away that death. Uh, or you know, kind of carrying it or bring it. Or if we want to talk about the environmental metaphor yeah. as well, right? That well, it's all the waste that the gets river is tainted by the river. Yeah, it's carrying it down. Yeah. Um, it's been poisoned by human life. Right, right. By but, industrialization, I'm mean, coming right. back to smokestacks. But it, so. but but it is a place where people can find some kind of meaning, right? Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. What happens in the story is you have Haruna and Yamada, and Yamada is a gay kid who gets bullied all the time. And he likes to go down to the river to look at this corpse. And that's well, like the, and his treasure, which we his later treasure, find out is, right. is a corpse. Yeah. And that's like the one thing in this whole town that I guess reminds him. It or maybe reminds him is the wrong word. Like kind of shocks him out of yeah. that sort of haze that all the kids are stuck in. Well, I think in, in his case, it's also the fact that he's fundamentally unhappy yeah. in his life as well because he gets bullied because he's in love with this other guy that will probably never love him back because, true. you know, he's a gay kid in a primarily, you know, straight school or he's just too afraid or like, like why would he come out to that kid? Like that's, there's so many layers of you yeah. know, repression there that he cannot be true to himself. And I think staring at this dead body is like some weird reassurance that they're alive and they're okay. I guess so. Like one of the tricky things about this book is that all of the characters are a little, bit difficult to like right i guess like they, well, they yeah, always yeah. have some part to them that doesn't entirely fit like yamada is someone right. a lot of terrible things have happened to him like he's been bullied he's been pushed around we see him like they bullies steal all his clothes they tear up his notebooks they physically abuse him all these terrible things happen but he he's also someone who's going out with a girl who he doesn't like and like right. doesn't well, say because, to her like hey we shouldn't go out anymore like he kind of strings her along right he sort of admits later on that it's something that he did because he secretly hoped that if he went through the motions eventually it would feel right yeah um I, and... I guess that makes sense like this idea that if you don't necessarily feel in, in that way with the person you're with but you don't want to disappoint them so you hope at some point it does right. like connect but he sort of goes through again without it ever connecting 
it's tough. Yeah. I mean, in the same way, man, you have like uh, Haruna and Kanazaki, the guy who's bullying. Right. The, the guy who's bullying Yamada, where Kanazaki is someone like Haruna, I guess, is dating him, but is she really? I mean, everyone seems to think they're dating. Yeah. One, so, one but... of the things that Kate Skelly was talking about in her podcast episode about it was like this whole question of is Haruna actually dating Kanazaki or does Kanazaki just keep telling everyone that he's so dating Haruna that's a, that's actually I think there's a there's a layer of or rather there's two layers that right. are that should be noted of of narrative in this and one is what society or what their group of of, of you know school children what they right. perceive as being their reality and then the second is what is actually happening so I yes. think a lot of these relationships are perceived or projected as what is happening when in reality that you know obviously i I would argue that she's not dating i mean yeah i I don't think that she is dating him i think she is having sex with him occasionally right um i think he maybe thinks he's dating her and Mm. is maybe part of why this is being projected to the whole school while also sleeping with another it's true that also happens so that's a thing but but i think that 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 um dichotomy between perception and reality is or yeah can I read another quote yes, from Harna? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, in the middle of this page. Is this a giant? It's a picture of a bedsheet with a tied up condom on it and a little pointer saying Kananzaki's body fluids in it. And then a spot of blood next to it with a pointer saying my bodily fluids. Then a, the big word safe sex written on top. Yep. So this is what Harna says. I had sex with Kananzaki last summer. Not because I loved him or anything. I think it was more that I wanted to just see what sex was like. And here's what I think about it. Number one, it's not as much of a big deal as I had imagined. Number two, it's weirder than I had imagined. The weird positions, the weird movements. Number three, it's easy to have special emotions for your partner. Number four, sex free creation holds many contradictions and mysteries. And so on. And you know, I mean, you compare this sort of thing to like, what was going on in a lot of girls comics at the time. And this is just way beyond in a sense. Well, and the the main character is also weirdly disconnected from feeling at least in the way. And I, and I do wonder if some of this is because she's an unreliable narrator to some extent, but she does feel very disconnected from it. I mean, I think all the characters are disconnected one way or another, right? That's true. Sort of meet throughout. Well, except for the ones that aren't because I feel like there are two characters at least in this that, well, two or more, depending on how you look at it, who have all of this emotion that builds up to a point where it is, it has nowhere to it go. It just explodes. Yes, but yeah. to explode and to literally destroy. I suppose that's true. Like, this book is really, the structure of it's pretty incredible because reading through it, you get the sense it's like a slice of life comic where the characters just keep moving from spot to spot and nothing seems to be building up. But by the end, right. you realize that the author has been setting dominoes up the entire time and it all falls at once so, and everything goes hideously wrong. Um, that's actually very uh, keen to what I was going to share mm-hmm. for, as far as an excerpt, yeah. um, which is what I really perceived as sort of the, the thesis writ or said out loud in the comic near the end. Yeah. Um, and that is tragedy doesn't occur at random. That's not how it works. The truth is that it slowly, gradually prepares itself in the midst of our stupid, boring daily lives. That's how it comes. And when it happens, it's like a balloon popping out of nowhere. It happens like a pup out of nowhere. Yeah. And and to me, that's literally like it's, it's saying that the quiet thing out loud, as far as 
that's what this story is about. It's this quiet, boring, stupid life happening until the pressure that is exerted on some of the people in the story just builds to a point where it pops. And it feels like even after it pops, no one really knows what to make of it, right? Like no, it goes life just off. goes on. Yeah, life exactly. goes on. Uh, Harna, I guess, moves away. Yeah, right. Like I guess the character do they do the characters understand each other better than they did before? No, they, no, it's absolutely not. Really not. A there's question. no yeah. great epiphany, no great catharsis. Right. It just keeps there's going. there's no moment I guess of like apology or something where the characters yeah. go, oh, I see. In fact, the characters actively reject it. Um, it's it's pretty yeah. interesting. Like the 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 pregnancy is like there there's a pregnancy. Yeah, one in of the this. characters gets pregnant, and yeah. then everyone who was potentially going to be impacted by this kind of like you know. Like she's scarred probably for life, yeah. but like the pregnancy's gone, so like that's no longer. And a concern, you just move on. But, yeah, it's true. Um, I but yeah, no, on. I was gonna say, but in that sense, this is this is a story that very much doesn't necessarily play by sort of the beats of climax and sort of like there being some kind of moral realization or or catharsis or like yeah. that doesn't happen. There, it, it seems fairly uninterested in that, right? Any kind of moral judgment. I guess. Well, I think you as the reader can draw that. Right. But can. but the characters don't have that moment. Right. Necessarily. So I for mean, what distinction that's worth. Earlier in this conversation, I mentioned there being precedent for for what Okazaki was doing with, River, with River's Edge. I brought up Fully Cooly as one that was inspired by River's Edge. But actually, right. as um, back when I wrote this newsletter, something that somebody on Twitter brought up is that Okazaki herself took influence from people before her. Right. I think if you want to talk about like comics about complicated kids in high school. The reference point people kept bringing up was the works that came out of weekly young magazine back in the 1980s. So that was what's called a seinen magazine. It was a comic that was like target. It was a magazine targeted toward like men in their twenties and thirties. And around like the middle of the 1980s, you had a bunch of comics that were being drawn that were about teenage boys and their weird problems and love hangups, I guess. So if you're looking for an example you can read in English, there is a series called, I think it's pronounced Sigoatera, which was written and drawn by Minami Furuya, which is a comic about this kind of down-in-his-luck geek who falls in love with this girl who starts going out of him out of the blue. Uh, this uh, boy has like ties to a bully, and like you see the boy's life, and now he gets frustrated with life. It's very down to earth and deliberately awkward and embarrassing, but it's telling like this story about messy teens rather than a story about like straight and narrow shonen jump types. Like this isn't this isn't about someone who says, I'm gonna be the best at something ever. This is just about people who are muddling through life and are often just pretty misinformed about what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're just kind of flailing around and trying whatever comes first. Another artist who's I think is supposed to be very influential as Minotaro Mochizuki, but it's difficult with him because the comic of his in the U.S. that's best known as Dragonhead. Have, mm-hmm. have you heard of that one? Mm-mm. No. So that's like a post-apocalyptic comic where like the world ends and everyone's just trying to get through it. But I guess he actually started mm-hmm. his career drawing comics about teens in this way that were sort of in a similar vein to what Furuya was doing, but then also later what Okazaki was doing. I, I do think. think it's interesting that you mentioned uh, seinen as a genre. When yeah. the, I mean, again, these genres can mean very little relative well, to the Well, they're demographics, I guess. Right. Uh, exactly. And because of that, it can mean very little next to like what the work actually does. But technically speaking, River's Edge is Jose. Um, so 
again, doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be, but I, I always find it interesting, like uh, crossover, but I always find it interesting how limiting these demographics can be sometimes relative to what the work actually does. If we want to talk about demographics and where it was published, actually, do you mind if I do a brief talk about like... No, go for it. I, so I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know if you were done. Uh, oh, no, it's okay. I, I think thought. we can move on. Um, something that I find especially interesting. So there is a blog post on a site called Ceiling Gallery, which talks about Okazaki's career. And they talk about the sorts of magazines that she published work in. So River's Edge was in Cutie magazine, right? As it said in the back of the book. Right. The, the fascinating thing about Okazaki is that while you had a lot of famous comics artists whose work was published in um, like mainstream comics magazines, stuff like uh, Weekly Shonen Sunday, right? Where Rumiko Takahashi did Rama One Half and that sort of thing. Right. Or like uh, Shonen Jump, where he had books like Slam Dunk and that kind of thing. Okazaki, her work was often just published in magazines that people outside of manga subculture read. So she actually started her career. She was scouted and brought into this magazine called Manga Bariko, which from what this ceiling gallery blog was saying was basically like a porn magazine for lolicons basically oh like it had art like featuring sure. women who like looked really young right and the editor brought okazaki on because he recognized that okazaki like told stories about real people that had real problems and this editor thought so all these other artists in this magazine are drawing stuff that's like fantastical it's like about these women that don't actually exist right and so if we bring in this person who's like directing the mirror right back up. at the audience to show them what life is actually like, then we can have it both ways. So Okazaki like starts attracting female fans. People start reading this magazine because they say, oh, there's this person who's drawing comics in it that are telling it like it is instead of all these other people who are drawing fantasies, right? And she definitely, like, to be clear, her work is very much R-rated. It's true, uh, there, yeah. And there's also a lot of like sort of almost pinup quality um you know, elements in this in River's Edge specifically. So Right. Like fashion you know. is something I think that yeah. interests her. Drawing like quote unquote cool people. Oh yeah. Is something that interests her. Well there's a model literally oh, in, for the, sure. in, in this story. I mean you can you can draw that on to any other number of artists who sort of followed in her footsteps or right. like worked within the demographic that she helped create. Loyoka Ano is this is also something that interests her. Even someone like Ayazawa who drew Nana and Paradise Kiss is I think right. someone her work I think is more kind of these conventional romances rather than being so abrasive but even yazawa's stuff like she will tell stories that seem really fantastical and luxurious on the outside but when you look a bit deeper the characters are more complicated than that and more have more problems than that and okazaki definitely laid the groundwork for that anyway so if we're talking about the magazines that okazaki was published in she was just published in straight up fashion magazines <laughs> Like uh, again, but that does make yeah. sense. It's yeah, not surprising it's to me though. Like Moga, Me Twin, Anan, I think are the ones that are mentioned. She had comics that were published in Heibon Punch, which uh, Ceiling Gallery, the blog, refers to as like a magazine, quote unquote, for baby boomers, like the sort of magazine sure. that yeah. like parents read, maybe. And she like she would interview musicians in um, just music magazines like she was the sort of person who wasn't just constrained to manga but 
would just go out there in the real world and talk I to mean, people. legit, because I, I looked her up, yeah. uh, and I, lo- I looked some photos up of her. Like, she absolutely looked the part, yeah. too, though. Like, she looked like she was a really cool woman. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> in her time. I mean, you brought up Naoko Takauchi, yeah. right? And famously, like, there are all these pictures of Takauchi where she's wearing all kinds of really stylish clothing and that right. kind of thing. Like, I don't think comics artists should have to be that way, but I guess it makes sense that Okazaki was like that because yeah. she was someone who wrote about what she knew, I right. guess. Like, um, and, and, and I mean, again, like I, I do recognize like the image that she portrayed at least outwardly mm-hmm. um, is one that you would recognize in some of the characters that she writes in these. Like, I feel like actually weirdly enough, the, the, um, the character that I would consider probably the closest to an authorial self insert is the model. Yeah. This. Do we want to talk about her? Um, yeah. So this that is, is, what's her name? Um, it's Kozue. Yes. Um, and yeah, she is a child model, I guess, ostensibly, although she's like, they're all first years in high school. Yeah. Um, she's like a teenage model, I guess. Um, and she's like at a point in her career where it's picking up enough that she's getting, uh, like recurring roles in like TV dramas and yeah, stuff. She'll appear, and she'll appear in commercials. Well, well, well com- correct. She was appearing in commercials, but then she gets like actual roles, I think in TV dramas, yeah. which is why she's like, I might drop out of high school now because I don't need this. Anymore. It's true. So, yeah, it's interesting. And she does sort of, it's when we see her, she does seem at a remove, right? Like Haruna thinks of her as this incredibly glamorous person who like exists yeah. outside of high school. But then they have that conversation down by the water, right? Do I, maybe I can pull, I can pull. It's on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I um, marked it in this book. But she's also, I mean, to kind of to that, to that, and she's also similarly disaffected. Yes. Not the least of which, because she's very disconnected from everyone else in school because of, you know, being a model and everything that that entails, including um, a food eating disorder because she yeah, literally. Yeah, she's bulimic. Yeah, right. Right. She can't, you know, she has to watch her, her figure clearly and uh, still likes to eat. So she ends up eating a lot and then puking because. The way this um, comic handles food is interesting. There's a scene in the cafeteria where we see all the different characters and how they respond to food where Harana doesn't care. She just sort of eats whatever. Yeah. Um, her friend Rumi is like, oh, no, you have to watch your weight. What are you doing? And then Kazue, of course, also eats whatever she wants, but only so she can throw it up later. Right. You sort right. of see like how these different characters interact with the world based on... I mean, I, I actually think it's interesting that the quote-unquote protagonist character is probably the character that everyone else wishes they were like her. You think so? I think in a way, because she's truly the most free spirited. She kind of just does what she wants. And you mean Harna? Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't let herself true. be tied down by anything else. Whereas everyone else is tied down by something, whether it's their pursuits as a model in the case of Kozue, whether it's in the case of, uh, you know, Ichiro Yamada, it's the fact that his desires will never be met. Yeah. And he has to be closeted. Um, like there's always something that's keeping them from feeling free and, Meanwhile, Harna is just out here doing whatever she wants. God, do you remember the moment with the kittens? Oh, God, yeah. So there are these kittens that are introduced at the very beginning of the That comic. is probably the saddest, single saddest moment in this. And the, one, of the, so one of the ways that Harna knows that Yamada is okay is that she sees yeah. Yamada feeding these kittens. And so she thinks, um, if Yamada is feeding these kittens, he must be a good guy. Like someone who yeah. takes care of weak and helpless creatures. Now, these kittens are killed later in the comic by a bunch of teens just, just in a fun. random like yeah. act of senseless yeah and then 
Kazue sees them and thinks it's really funny. She's like, haha, isn't it like so right. outrageous that this bag is full of dead kittens? And Haruna is destroyed by that. She Because she realizes crying. it's those kittens that yeah. she had also been caring for, right? And and also just there's some part of Haruna that still feels sad when she sees vulnerable things that have been destroyed. Well, and I think actually it's interesting that you bring that up because yeah. that is the one moment in this entire comic where I really felt like that she was, she had to like kind of restrain something in herself uh, and what I mean by that is that she doesn't tell Yamada about this. She keeps it to herself. Yeah, that that's those true. kittens were killed so as to protect him. Like, that is the one time where she she's not as free going. Right. Sense. I mean, I, I think it's also true. Like that moment is one of the scenes that actually kind of interests Kazue. I think because yeah, she realizes yeah. she was already kind of going, "Oh, I like that Haruna's free spirited," but then she realizes that. Haruna still has some part of her that right. hasn't become so disaffected that she can still feel these well, things. Well, I think actually that's when she develops a crush on her because yeah, following that's that, definitely she tries book. to put the moves on her yep, and yep, it yep. doesn't quite go because I don't think Haruna is into girls that way. Or yeah. It's not actually clear why it doesn't. It just kind of doesn't work out and then life moves on. <laughs> yeah, that uh, Haruna ends up, like at the end, she, like, she ends up just having this moment of Kananzaki that is desperate sort of thing. And when Causeway goes, Oh, okay. She's just like one of all those other people. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, it, it I mean to me, but, I, but the, the, the story ends on a, on a panel where she's flicking the, the cigarette lighter. That's true. That she got from Harna. So she's yeah. thinking about her. <laughs> yeah. So sorry. The line I wanted to yes. quote that Causeway says, uh, let's see. She says, everybody in the world pretends to be all pretty and cool and fun, but they're so full of crap. Fuck those assholes. Give me a break with that shit. I don't have a way out, but neither do you bastards. So serves you right. So there you go. Like Kazue is someone who yeah. presents as this really cool person who has it all, but actually beneath she's thinking, screw you. You're all full of shit. Like none of you are genuine or unique. You're all just pretending. Yeah. Like, she's has this strong knee jerk. I mean, I guess adolescent, but also these characters do genuinely live in a world where everything's falling to pieces. So it makes sense that, of course, they see things that way where nothing's really working and nothing's genuine. I mean, I think that's also a normal reaction for someone who's in their early teens. Yeah. Because that's the moment in life where I think everyone is confronted by all of the myths they had as children being sort of torn by their own sort of burgeoning adulthood. Yeah. And to be fair, I guess heart. Haruna does sort of challenge Kozue on that because later yeah. she sees Kozue on TV and she goes, oh, it's so easy to say that everyone else is full of shit when you're the one who has everything. It's true. Which is probably... And she does live a very nice life as a result. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I feel like every character in the story has something that they're carrying. Right. I mean, Kozue is... Uh, I guess she's fortunate in some ways, but she also well, but has she eating also, disorder. She she's can't, yeah, she can't enjoy her life. She has to like, yeah... I'll also say of these characters, Kazue does appear in a later comic, I think. Oh, interesting. I didn't I totally that. forgot about it, but I think in Katie Skelly's podcast, she was saying that Kazue appears later in Helter Skelter. That would make sense. So I guess like her story continues to some degree there. Yeah. So it's not just all wrapped up here. I mean, so I guess that's good. Somewhat thematically, I mean, having read Pink, uh, there's characters like the protagonist of Pink in a way feels connected to, to, to a lot of those choices as well insofar yeah. as you know, not giving a crap about like her nine to five and having to kind of live this escort life to kind of make it or re really to actually make money. But obviously there's, there's a distinction between being, you know, a prostitute and escort and being a, a model or right. a model, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have characters like Rumi in here too. 
Right. Or like Yamada, I think we see is also sleeping with guys. Or, well, or he's like coming in and being, I don't know if he's being paid to or if he's being abused, but, but the, it seems like there's a difficult thing there. So the reason I bring that up is because I think there's a, it might be, I think in the back material of Pink, not to bring in Pink into no, this, but there's, there's a statement there which effectively something to the effect that all work is a form of prostitution. And I think yeah. that's why I bring that up because I think that's a, that's a theme that is recurring in her work. I mean, also there, well, I guess I've never done sex work, but part of me feels like I've, I've talked to a sex worker and they've said it really isn't so different. In right. Some ways. Well, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. And or I like think, at least yeah. if you're in a situation where you can control it versus one where you can't, right. It can be more equitable or less equitable, I guess, depending on the situation. Right. But yeah, no, it's um, it's true. But but I was just to say that there's there's a cost of sorts yeah. to the individual, uh, and I think you see that less so in Riverside because they're all high schoolers, they're not working necessarily. But you right. do see it, I think, with uh, Kozue because she's like the only sort of professional amongst them. In a yeah, way. I mean, I think the characters in Rivers Edge are all very, they feel very self possessed to me. Yeah, in a way that like kids in these sorts of stories aren't always. I mean, I, I think they're all figuring mm-hmm. things out still, but it does feel like they're, I mean, just the fact that each of them is capable of this kind of interior monologue. Or That's like, true. I don't know. Would Canon Zaki be able to have an interior monologue? Uh, I don't, mm, maybe not. That, that, that dude is an idiot. Can we talk about Kanan Zaki? What do you feel about Kanan Zaki? Uh, I think he is kind of like the poster child for that guy who is attractive enough to be popular but yeah. he's a complete bonehead i mean he has that long hair right yeah or like he's i guess he's like just fashionable enough that people yeah go, oh he's like kind of cool but when you look at what he does actually he's you know worst. he's a drug dealer he cheats frequently but like essentially one of these guys they just kind of sleepwalks through life and life kind of just unfolds for them yeah um but because they're in the right place at the right time and attractive and or looking good looking enough in a certain way that opens those doors those doors keep opening for them. Do you I think, feel considering like sensei's pious life? Exa- I, I was yeah. literally going to go there. That, that was my next step is I think the, the characters that I could think of that are most similar, uh, isn't sensei's pious lie. It's, right. it's the, uh, the husband of her best friend, the husband of the main che- character's best friend. Correct. Right. Uh, forget the names, but like he basically cheats on her, on his wife while she's pregnant. Like, serially cheats and, and he's like and sort of blackmailing her right yeah eventually i, I mean sort of bad or looks. rather she ends up blackmailing him back at some point and basically right. getting him to like you know stick into the relationship and be a provider but um so in the sense that guy gets his comeuppance um but that character is probably the most like uh kanazaki feels like a young version of that character yeah i think there's something about kanazaki like down I, to like him also like not necessarily sexually not actually maybe sexually assaulting someone yeah <laughs> so no it's true anyway. i mean i think there's something about kanazaki i find interesting i just feel like there's maybe another version of this story where kanazaki is just a two-dimensional bully where he has no right, other dimension right. to him he's just straight up evil he uh treats people badly uh, there, well, and there's never like, that simple in these books and they, yeah and they find stories. like some kind of explanation for it but i i feel like something about river's edge to me is like even though Kanazaki is an idiot, he still feels like the sort of idiot you know, or like the sort of idiot right. that makes sense. Right. Like he's not just an evil guy who likes to hurt people. He's like a very arrogant kid who has a difficult family situation, has, I guess he's like lusting after Haruna because Haruna had sex with him once and he thinks, well, that must right. mean we're going out. Right. Um, he's someone who 
like lashes out at Yamada to sort of solve his own feelings of inferi- of inferiority probably like he's like an actual guy rather than uh just a, a straight up yeah. villain yeah. yeah which i think to some degree like it's part of what sets this book apart right like pro- not just from books in its time but also maybe from books today in terms True. of like yeah. Well, I think it's also why it stands up so well, yeah. even today. I mean, like, literally three decades le- later. Don't think too hard on that. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to think too hard about it. <laughs> God, okay. But, yeah, when you think of it, yeah, anyways. Um, but, no, I would agree. I, I, mean, I mean, that's full credit to Kyoko Okazaki for that. You know, maybe you can say there's, like, parts of this book that... Because I feel like today you see a lot of work that's exploring these kinds of themes. Like they'll have uh, gaming characters. They'll have like characters right. dealing with sexuality well, and adolescence and that sort of thing. Another manga that we, we didn't, or even movie that we didn't mention that I think has some of this DNA is uh, a silent voice. Yeah. I don't think we've done an episode on it. Right. But it is no, definitely no, a series no. that Alex really likes as well. Yeah. That like tackle some of this stuff. Right. But I don't know. But it also I, doesn't have, but it doesn't have the same nuanced hand. I think that this does. I think that's worth noting. I mean, I would even say like, River's Edge is mean. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and a lot of very true though. Just yeah. recent yeah. work is not interested in being. I think in part because like you have comics artists who want to tell these stories as sort of a means for people to hold on to, so mm-hmm. they can say, "Oh, like this is something for me. This tells me it's like okay to live my life. Like uh, it's fine to be like like this person in this book, right?" So I can understand definitely why they want to be more optimistic. But part of me also does like that River's Edge is, I mean, I guess it's it's really edgy. <laughs> it <laughs> came out hey. at a time of nihilism um, when people just drew these kinds of stories about how everything was fucked. And so there's a sense reading the book that you don't have that kind of good naturedness in it. Right. It's just wholly concerned with anger and frustration and social critique and that kind of thing. I think there's also a questioning of, like there's an existentialism almost to it. Um, I mean, one of my favorite moments in it is there's this line, I never know whether I'm dead or alive that gets said or thought as they find the dead body. Yeah. As Harna's looking at this dead body, like she's thinking about this. And then mean in like literally at the same time interspace with this, her boyfriend is cheating on her. So yeah, like, that whole sequence yes, where it's flipping back and forth right. is, this is so like this wild. Very like heavily erotic scene between these kids having sex while there's a dead body that they're staring at, and the main character is wondering whether she's alive or. I dead. mean, straight up pornographic. Like yeah, they're just exactly. two kids getting it on, <laughs> right? While the other kids are like looking um, at a corpse by the water. It's really intense. But I think that's in a nutshell. Like that is the juxtaposition of this work where you have this like very intense desire to live. Like, yeah, these kids are tackling with and not necessarily in a healthy way because they're just fucking like rabbits right um while also being confronted by death both societally and literally as far as like you know seeing dead bodies or at the end of the story like people die (laughs) yeah can i ask Um, you a question alex if you feel comfortable asking it do you feel like you've thought more about death as you've gotten older or like this was something you thought a lot about when you were in high school well I will say I was probably uh, not a good example for okay. or, or a good poster child for that. Having a big move. Um, yeah, I can relate. I've done the uh, same right. thing. Uh, particularly coming into a foreign country, though, as right. an immigrant as well. 
uh, and having your whole world uprooted, I think, changes is really your perspective. Difficult. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it there's a lot of things that you might take for granted mm. that all of a sudden you cannot take for granted. So because of that, and I think we both had that to an yeah. extent, right? Because of that, it, it it's not necessarily something that I didn't think about as much, but I, I think it just changed my expectation towards like things being such mainstays that I could always count on them and rather being more doubtful of that in a way that when I was later confronted by death in my in my you know family and you know it it definitely hit hard but it wasn't something that I think I've necessarily thought of more as I've gotten older it was just something that the impermanence of life was there from the beginning so yeah in a more, like the reason I bring it up is just like um, being like 31 or whatever something yeah. you do think about is just like as the body decays your body changes there are things you used to be able to do you can't do anymore like there are some things that you used to be able to do that now you have to do differently i right. feel like your relationship with those sorts of notions uh rearranges a bit well i feel like when you're younger to me like i remember i mean i i did move in a similar way to how you did right i was like stuck in a totally different environment of people who i didn't know although i guess i could speak the same language as them and i shared some of the same culture so it could have been worse but i think while i felt extremely bad at times it was less about being afraid of dying and more about feeling like I was a train about to crash into a brick wall. Oh, it's like so funny that you should of say immediate that. One of the dreams that I had as a, as a teenager before yeah. I even actually learned to drive a car was that I was driving a car and I would lose control. Really? So that's, it's just such, it's, I don't know. Some of these things are freaking. For me, it was like this anyway. feeling that high school was this giant tunnel I was in and there was a train that was coming down right toward me mm. and I could just walk down that tunnel forever and ever and never get out. That's when I started seeing Yay, a therapist. Dreams. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was uh, just like day to day life. Like that, what that yeah. felt like, I suppose. Yeah. And sometimes does still feel like, like the world we live in is but weird you know, in all kinds of ways. So I'm, it's cool that you're, well, it's not, the question itself is not cool, but it, it's interesting that you asked that question as far as, you know, when did I, you know, do I, do I think more of death now as an adult or did yeah. I think more of death as a kid? I think generally speaking, kids don't think about that, except for those that do. And I think yeah. this story does a good job of showing you the kids that do think about death right. or are fascinated by it while others. And actually, that's why I think Kanazaki is such an interesting character, because he is the character that in a way doesn't. He, his response yeah. to death is animalistic. He just doesn't have the forethought or like the ability Correct. to think outside of his box. Like Correct. you said, he's driven by he's driven by his needs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, so I think in that sense, he's a very interesting character because he's a foil to, yeah. to, to the fact that literally everyone else is somewhat consumed by that sort of you know life and death. Um, you know, that they just can't reconcile how both can exist at the same time. Or even time. someone like Kana that y Yamada's going yeah, out with, yeah, right? Like yeah. when she gets this sense that uh, Yamada no, no longer knows mm -hmm. the do of her anymore, she lashes out. I, I think because she just has this conception of what her life is and she can't imagine a life outside of that. Like she needs right. someone to care about her. And when she thinks, well, who, why doesn't this person care about me anymore? How do I get right. like this kind of affection back? She goes, I will hurt whoever like has taken this away from me. Right. And that herself. I mean, she literally yeah, immolates no, herself. True. So, you know, it's awful. Yeah. Um, and that's not her saying, oh, I'm outside the system. I'm so cool. It's her just lashing out and just also being put in the wrong place at the wrong time right. because she lashes out. Yeah. Like Haruna, I guess, escapes. Right. Because... Um, Kana well, she wasn't. She wasn't at home at the time. Yeah, so. no, it's true. Um, 
Yeah. All these things just line up very carefully. Um, but, I, I, you know, because since we're kind of delving into somewhat spoiler territory for yeah, this, apologies. but also the uh, the sort of climatic moments of violence, um, I did not expect, um, what's her name? The um, the Rumi's girl that, that sleeps around. Yeah. Oh, Rumi. Uh, yeah. Lumi. Yeah. Uh, her her older sister um, like literally like attacks her with a yeah paper that stuff cutter. was really rough because um, like it's sort of you know I mean they have this sibling relationship where they both live in the same house they're both so different yeah but they all they have like these deep seated things that frustrate each other that yeah. come out in that moment where normally they can sort of cohabitate but then when they're pushed they're like ah oh, this is what I really think about you and right? this is what I really <laughs> think about you right. And- and that's actually another thing that feels very close to Sensei Spice. Like, there's also a set of siblings in that that have oh, a very really? weird relationship. Uh, it's actually it's a it's a brother that's like a you know he just lives indoors and like peeps on his older sister while she messes around with other people's relationships. Yeah. It's it's really pervy and fucked up. I mean, to be whatever, fair, but, I think I've said this earlier. Um, but I don't think the comic judges Rumi either. It's not no saying, no no. Oh, she's a villain because she's sleeping with Kanazaki. It's just yeah, this is something she's doing, and she doesn't tell Haruna about it. Right. And that's just how it is. Uh, but it's, it, it, the more I think about it, Sensei's Pious Lie, I wonder how much it owes to this because there's there feels like there's a lot of echoes. But yeah, anyways. you'd really wonder about it. Wouldn't you? Oh, okay, Adam. I don't, is this like the time to bring it up? So yeah, no, there, this is the perfect time to bring it up. There is it. an interview on the newsletter Manga Explaining with right. Deb Aoki. It's something that she does with David Brothers and some other cool folks. But they are helping to publish some of Akane Torikai's more recent work, The Person Who Draws Sensei is Pious Lying. And in the interview, Aoki asks Torikai if she is a fan of Kyoko Okazaki. And Torakai, as you'd imagine, says yes. Of course, of course she I mean, is. Obviously, I she see says, so much of this. And so here's a quote. Anyways. So uh, to- Torikai, she says, "I know this sort." So she says, uh, "When she was in high school, she didn't read manga because she thought that manga wasn't cool, and she like only wanted to do things that impressed her that were stylish or whatever." Sure. But she says, "I knew this sort of quote unquote bad girl in junior high, and she brought in a ladies' comic magazine to school." And so because Okazaki like just had comics running in fashion magazines. Right. Um, that's how Torakai, I guess, was introduced to it, that she was just looking at that magazine and it just happened to have comics by Okazaki in there. She says the first story that she read was uh, Refrigerator Woman. I don't know if it's been translated. I, I'm mm, guessing maybe it's a one shot. Yeah. But she talks about how I remember being so shocked that there was uh, this manga out there that was so different from escapist fantasy manga like he had all these other comics out there that were so much more about wouldn't it be cool if you were like a ninja or you had a boyfriend or if you were in space but okazaki's comics were again just about normal people living their lives and like normal people who are really messed up and sort of giving this more i don't know if it's like a more realistic portrait but it's a portrait that's more in keeping with the spirit of the times versus like creating this world where people have what they want i guess it's a different sort of... I mean, there's also, I would almost say, almost hyper-realism yeah. to, to the amount of... Well, you could probably reasonably expect some of this in, in your life, but maybe not all of it all at once. Oh, at for same, sure. It's like it's like life on, on steroids. I, I guess know. it's still exaggerated in that way. And yeah. like she does set up these pieces neatly enough that when they all fall, you're like, would that really all happen so yeah. cleanly? Well, right? you, I, I know for a fact that when you take pink, so some of yeah. her earlier work in that sense, it's, it, it definitely 
exists in a more surreal sort of space. Oh, for sure. But River's Edge is, is so grounded where, you know, yeah, you have to ask yourself that question. I should also say uh, Helter Skelter, which is the work she did. I think it's maybe like her last comic, like the last big comic she did before. That's right. Yeah. Have we talked about her accident yet? No, we have not. We haven't talked about her accident. Yeah. We're going to talk about the accident later. But after the Helter Skelter's the last big comic she did before her accident, and it just goes up in a straight up Lynchian Twin Peaks territory by the end in terms of being surreal and having odd things, odd horrific things happen. Yeah, I'm going to have to so, check out like that Helter kind Skelter. of spookiness is in her work as well. Yeah, that, that, like that, that, exactly that makes reality. sense. I think that feels like a natural evolution from Pink to River's Edge. Yeah. where you might go next so that right. makes sense so yeah absolutely torakai is inspired without a doubt um and interestingly Torakai I feel, like I, I feel like you set me up for that adam <laughs> i did in fact i was i'm I was not glad that you brought sensei's pious lie up so early it, so it, i'd have an excuse it's hard not to like the comparison is just so on the nose <laughs> yeah uh she also says since i since i brought up cigaretera earlier right by Minoru furia right the which was published in weekly young magazine i believe she says that not only was she influenced by Siguratera, but she was an assistant for Furia. She worked for him. So in that sense, like just like Okazaki was inspired by those comics, um, Torakai herself like worked directly for those people right. who were drawing those comics. Like it's all connected. Is you it had always... comics for older women that were inspired by comics for boys, and then uh, other boys' comics artists were inspired by Okazaki's work and Anna's work again. Like famously, and I, I talk about this in the newsletter I wrote. I mean, you look at uh, the sorts of work that folks like uh, Hideaki Anno, who did Evangelion, were doing, that the people who made Fully Cooly were doing, they were all reading this stuff. And actually, as a matter of fact, I think Fully Cooly at the time was controversial with some hardcore fans of oh. Gainax because they saw those elements in it that weren't quite like the sort of thing they were used to they're like why is this about like real life people this isn't what we want right i mean it's sort of interesting because the comparison to fully coolie is one that would not have occurred to me because again fully coolie where it wants to go is different and what it does is different but aesthetically it hits on some of those points and it evokes some of those same feelings in a way where you do i mean obviously you, you do have that overlap but it's just um it's kind of funny to me to think about it. Yeah, because again, you, so much about being like a extremely sexually repressed twelve-year-old young boy yeah. who doesn't really understand the world, and it's so grounded in that kind of headspace. And like, Okazaki, is but it also deals with that by essentially being like guitars and robots oh, and punching. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Whereas you know, obviously, River's Edge is more and it's interesting. Like the know. way Fully Cooly ends, it's Nalta saying the main character Nalta saying, "Oh." All the adults in my life are idiots, but I don't have to be an adult because I'm only 12 years old. So I can just yeah. live my life and it's fine. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like River's and Edge it's okay is... okay to have guitars and robots. Yeah. And, <laughs> and River's Edge is a lot messier than that. Like, right. the characters never say, oh, it's okay if I just give up and live my life. Like, it feel it, it still ends in a note where the characters go, well, I have to keep living, but I feel like it's not nearly as... There's not that warm feeling of nostalgia to it that Fully Cooley has, I think. Right it's still a lot more caustic all the way to the end. Well, I mean, because ultimately it, it's an, an adult story that yeah. is sad in the way that an adult story can be. Would you say that this is a young adult story? Like in a contemporary I mean, it sense? It can be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, depending on the kids um, you've assigned it to. I, I would I would say it's the kind of thing that I would I would assign to a ninth grade uh, 
lit class. Yeah. <laughs> and expect them to, to deal with it. Oh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. I feel like their but, parents look at, like, the explicit sex scenes between kids and go, what? Yeah. What is this shit? I mean, uh, yeah, but, listen, you would get in trouble if you did that. But but as far as, like, high literature and other things that kids read in school, yeah. it's not I mean, that far I, I feel like, to me, it's maybe just more like River's Edge is so grounded <clears throat> in the 90s that maybe someone who came from a couple a couple decades later would look at it, some things and go, why is it this way? <laughs> like, why don't the characters have cell phones? That's or true. Why do they not communicate in this way? Or or why um, are you driving up your your parents' phone bill? Why is there phone? only one yeah. gay person who exists? Yeah. <laughs> Where did everybody else go? What's going on? I mean, that is probably the biggest limitation of this story ultimately yeah. is that you would have to if if you were to introduce people to it that are too removed from the historic context. You need that preamble of Things were old timey and different. <laughs> yeah, and like I think that kind of remove is part of what makes this comic interesting to read today. But it's it's also something I think that does differentiate it. Where probably you can say, oh, it is like grounded in its time. There are some things right. it does that I think are we're just old enough that yeah. we're not too far removed from it. But I do wonder if you go like ten years younger than us, how that goes. It's true. I mean, I think Okazaki was definitely pushing the boundary with her work. Yeah. And like paving the way for other people after her to push things even further. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how much of what she was doing came from her wanting to honestly represent the world as it was. And how much of it was her sort of deliberately throwing firebombs around <laughs> to try to change things. And whether it was a combination of both. Because there's definitely like parts of the book where you go, oh, like that's really out there, right? Yeah. Where she sort of pushes things pretty far. Like the the murder scenes mm-hmm. and people burning to death and all that stuff. I do wonder, sometimes uh, when people deal with such sort of difficult um, matter in general, I do wonder, it's like, what what hurts you to, to lead to this? I mean, I think people are hurt all the time. Well, so true, making work true. that explores that stuff to me is really valuable i mean although there's ways there's probably ways you can do it that are sort of annoying like if someone doesn't approach it with a lot of tact maybe oh true true um but i mean i guess maybe there's a morbid curiosity to asking that question and trying to understand like what makes someone tick a certain way yeah um but speaking of of that you meant we've been hinting at this for a while that there was a there's a big accident yeah life um and that you know I don't know if you had anything specific to say about it, but um, so what happens to Koko Okazaki is she draws all these incredible comics, including so pink and Helter Skelter, I feel like are the two she's best known for in the U S but of course she has plenty of other comics. I don't think have been translated yet. River's edge was eventually translated, but there's stuff like she drew a comic called rock about like mm-hmm. scene club kids. It was like her breakthrough and that still hasn't come out in English. And she's done some other stuff as well. Lots of sort of, kind of sexy comics right because like that was one of the things that helped her get published and probably something right. she relied on to pay the bills but after she published Helter Skelter I think the year after maybe she got in a car accident that as far as we know made it so she couldn't draw comics anymore it just put her out she disappeared from the scene for ages I mean the I... folks around her who worked with her all just clammed up and wouldn't really say anything about what how she was doing yeah i do wonder about that because there's some credits on wikipedia beyond 95 but i don't know if they're just things that yeah earlier works that were then published or what exactly is the deal but apparently um that ceiling gallery post i mentioned it talks about okazaki appearing at a concert back in 2012 or so right and i think the idea is Potentially at that time, 
Okazaki can get around, but maybe she still doesn't have an easy time doing so. And maybe she's still in a position where she has to rely on others to help her get from place to place and just do basic things. So it still feels like that car accident really messed her up, like in an awful way. It's just considering the kind of person she was where she was responding directly to what was around her you think of like what she might have drawn in the modern day like how she might have continued to evolve written, yeah. drawn about japan in the 2000 the 2000s and the 2010s and the 2020s and there's all kinds of places she could have gone maybe she could have like fallen to pieces maybe she would have done something completely different we don't really know she might yeah. have done like a long-running series like something like Ayazawa's Nana or, Nana or something, right? Um, you know, the one thing we didn't mention, however, yeah. is that um, River's Edge was adapted into a movie. Oh, it was. I remember. I looked it up. Um, Apparently, it's pretty good. Yeah. And it was adapted fairly recently. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure why it yeah. took so long. Um, so it is, I mean, you know, what we do know, obviously, we will never know what her work would have continued to be like because yeah. it is tragically her ability to do comics is very tragically ended in 1995 as far as we know maybe at some um, point she'll come back and say hey i can do it now but it hasn't awesome. happened since yeah. then so um, we, but her we work know. continues to be out there both in yeah. you know in terms of like obviously we're getting uh, English translations of her work in 2023 we're getting movies made yeah. in 2018 so like there is, you know, maybe because so many people who are influenced by her work are now out there either themselves doing other things or bringing attention back to it. I think there is a relevance to it, obviously, still, you know, decades yeah. later. Like, I don't know if Okazaki necessarily created the field that she was in, but at the very least, she rode that wave. Like, it happened to coincide at a time when there were people like her who were out there. She inspired many others to follow in her footsteps. Yep. She went on a sort of equally successful careers in their own right. And now there's a whole body of comics about like ordinary women in Japan living their lives yep. and having complicated romantic relationships and like stuff going on with work and that sort of thing that, you know, in some ways I feel like bits of it have been corporatized, but it still can feel pretty wild. Like you look at stuff like Sensei's Pious Lie by Torakai. Yep. There are all kinds of other authors who are pushing the boundaries in similar ways. There's a comic called uh, Gunjo, which ran an Icky back in the day, which was like this really cool comics magazine that carried stuff like Doro Hidoro and Bokurano and that kind of thing. And that is a comic that has not yet officially been translated into English, but does have like a Netflix movie based on it, which is pretty cool. Oh, and is it a good Netflix movie though? I think it's pretty good. <laughs> it's like it's sort of like a it's like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing. It's like the sort of thing mm, where you okay. have two, or maybe that's not it. It's like you have two women. Um, one of them had a crush on the other when she was younger, and then she comes back to her when she's married, and the person married says, "Kill my husband," and so they kill him and they go on the run. Okay um, then. Yeah. So you have like work that's like ex still exploring these sorts of like challenging topics so like right, people right. who do a lot of awful things or like are not necessarily likable but still like behave in a right realistic have, manner right and right. still have interesting stories these that, sorts of reflections yeah. of um the darker side of the world or like uh what life is like in that way are things that people usually go to manga to get away from right yeah right. and i feel like personally manga is way more interesting for having those stories because it feels like so much of it that comes out in the U.S. is not that. 
and so much of it that comes well, out in anime is not like that either. Unless you go really into the indie side side of things or or more alternative press, I, I think there's so. there's there's a lot there is just not as front and center by any stretch. Yeah, and I think like um, the grand majority of manga definitely is this sort of corporate fantasy stuff. Yeah, not which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like people need that sort of thing too, and there are all kinds of great artists who do that sort of work, but. I think having these stories that are more realistic or like explore these more complicated themes are also good. Yeah. Agreed. Do you know, so you think you're going to read Helter Skelter by her as well? Probably. Um, I don't know if it'll be anytime soon. I might give it a, a breather. I have some other things I have to get caught up on, but um, no, I, I, I like her work. I, I would, you know, would want to read more of what's been localized. That's cool. So you enjoyed reading through yeah uh, these then yeah both both river's edge and pink um i really thoroughly enjoyed do you um, think you might be interested in reading through just some straight up comics for girls as well like shoujo comics oh i you know you know i my palette strikes broadly i'm not gonna say no to anything that's fair because like i i know i asked you or about like what your yeah. past experience was with these sorts of comics yeah but for me i feel like when i was younger I went, oh, I don't want to watch this TV show. That's for girls, right? Oh, a lot of the time. I don't know. There were ages when I was like that. I grew up, like, when I was in, like, fifth grade or whatever, like, I was, like, a little twerp. I was there watching both Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball. Oh, wow. So you were cool. I see how it is. I was not let yet us in late. And I was there, like, as, like, the first season of Sailor Moon wraps up and they all all die. And I was just crying my eyes out. Like, little baby Alex just watching Sailor Moon and crying. Yeah, the producers behind the scenes are like, never do that again. It's not allowed. (laughs) So uh, I feel like because that was my experience at a very young age, I just... You know, I, I've never really drawn that line in the sand. Okay, of like, so that's never been a problem girls for you. Well, that's cool. Like that, so I was going to say for me, like one of the big difference makers was uh, there's this person, Shane and Garrity, who yes. was, was a webcomic artist yep, from yep. back in the day who drew Narbonic and currently draws Skin Horse, is I think has been or is an editor at Viz, has done a lot of cool stuff. Right. And she used to do a feature series on her live journal called Overlooked Manga Festival, where she talked about a bunch of this stuff. It's how I was introduced to work like Basara by Yuri Tamura or Skip Beat. But I think she like covered a lot of Moyoko Ano stuff there as well. Like I feel like that's sort of, that was my entry point, not just to Shoujo comics for younger girls, but also right. to Jose stuff for older women. Right. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I recommend going back and taking a look at some of those pieces if you're interested, but also just personally i feel like this sort of thing's really important right like having people out there who are doing this work of just exposing people to these sorts of comics i mean especially in the u.s where they're not always the ones that are promoted like you have to sort of dig right to find folks like garrity or even i think just jocelyn allen as well as like an editor who's uh, done a lot of really cool stuff like who edited my dreams at dusk i think and some other things and has really tried to push some of these artists that are doing interesting work i mean i will also always yell from the the cliffs that people should read Yona of the Dawn. That's also a show. Yeah, people love Yona of the so, Dawn. If um, you like Basara, I've heard Yona yep. of the Dawn is really good. And if you like Yona of the Dawn, I should say Basara is also hey, really good. Fair. I One day, one day. It's I true. have so much to catch up on. But um, I'm actually, speaking of which, I'm making progress on reading more Atomic Robo, not oh, to completely yeah? take us off a cliff. So how far, how, how many have you read now? Um, so I've, I've kept going. Um, I would say... Um, 
I do have a recommendation for you. Ghost okay. of Station X yeah. is one that I think you should check out just okay. because um, it. I think it hit on a lot of, of, of levels, including yeah. actually presenting Atomic Rebel with a pretty interesting moral conundrum, which okay. I thought was interesting. That's good so, to know. So you think that's um, like a good standalone one? I think they're out. all pretty good, but uh, if I were to compare that to like uh, the Flying She Devils one, I would say that's the one that you should read of, of what I just like right. caught up on. Um, it's also interesting going back to stuff that I've, I read like as it was coming out and rereading yeah. um, and seeing how it stands up. But yeah, Atomic Robo still stands up, I think for the most part. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I might so, have to check it out. It's all up on the internet. After it all. is. It is. Yeah. So there's no reason no, not geez. to. <laughs> yeah. And it's free. More importantly. Do we want to briefly talk about Baldur's Gate as well? Yes. Since yes, I know we should. that you've still been playing it you've gone pretty far i know i keep chugging along so i will admit once i hit act three i ground to a halt uh for a few reasons Uh um one of them is that i was just generally speaking mainlining a lot of this game so at some point my role was gonna slow right but also act three is overwhelming or rather Baldur's Gate is overwhelming. So you're in Baldur's Gate now, right? Um, yes, the city okay. of Baldur's Gate, or rather, um, it's three re- well, th- three. Let's say three regions of Baldur's Gate that you have access to because you have Riverton. Riverton. It's like this like suburb, outlying town. Then you have like this passage into the lower city. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could count the in between area as well as like uh, Worms Rock as like a section but i'm not going to for this yeah. and then you have like uh the the sewers and undercity uh area now there's also an upper city there's a, a fourth region that was apparently cut from the game right but just those three regions there's so much there's so many npcs oh boy so many quests that you can you can do stuff with all of which are pretty involved and all of which can have many options and ways to approach them so you're kind of confronted by this you know paralysis of choice of what do I do and how do I do it? And it, it kind of gave me a bit of a headache. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of just trying to gradually chip at it. So I definitely slowed my role. And in all of that, it doesn't help that you run into bugs more consistently in act three. Have you noticed the frame rate tanking? Oh God. Yes. Oh boy. I've, I've definitely had moments where I've, I saved the game, exited and gone back into it. Because so it was it pretty be consistent, seemingly, in the first act. Yep. And I haven't gone in the second one yet. I'm still getting through it. Digital Foundry did a thing on, I think it was Digital Foundry. On, on Eurogamer, right? Uh, What do you mean? I think Digital Foundry is associated with Eurogamer, right? It might be. I yeah. don't know, actually. I'm pretty sure it is. But they're, they're definitely a European-based yes. um, group. But I don't know, actually. It w- wouldn't surprise me in any event. But they did a thing, I think, on, on the... the performance of the game in act three and mm. kind of trying to like explain why it might be doing what it's doing but um yeah it's a known issue yeah um so geez so what kind of bugs have you encountered um probably the most notable and frustrating one yeah. has been um with and this is kind of entering into slight spoilers but uh i've been romancing Shadowheart. okay and the triggers basically for the uh, intimate scene with, with Shatterheart. With your goth GF. Yeah, yeah, well, who actually should have, and this is somewhat of a spoiler, should have white hair by now, but doesn't in my playthrough for mm. some reason because that also did not trigger. Yeah. I don't know why. But the triggers for the, basically, like your intimate scene with her 
clearly triggered because I got the dialogue for before and after, but I didn't get the cutscene. Well, that's interesting. And it's, and it's stuff like it's small stuff, but it's just immersion breaking enough and just kind of frustrating because those type of like cutscenes are, you know, they're they're nice little rewards that, that you kind of expect from the game. Yeah. And to not get one is definitely frustrating. It's tough because it's so, a tall order, right? Like with a game like this, they're juggling so many balls at once. Right. You'd expect they drop one or two. But even so, when it does, you go, oh, I can't believe it. You were supposed to be the chosen one. Right. Like there's there's weird things where it's clear that you can sequence break things in a way that just breaks them completely. Oh. So if you don't good. go in the order the game expects you to for some reason, like you do other things, you know, before or after, it just kind of messes stuff. But it's tough because like that's what this sort of game is supposed to be, right? Correct. Like one of the things I heard about Baldur's Gate 3 is that it lets you do these things in whatever order you want. And it does still do it really effectively at times, but you can tell that they just couldn't account for everything and yeah. there are and somehow we're all finding ways to break it <laughs> so what you're saying is they probably needed more time probably yeah i mean it's and not surprising alternatively maybe there just wasn't enough time because honestly i don't think you can test play test something to the degree that f- hundreds of thousands of people can at the same time yeah. as a game comes out i guess that makes sense i think there's no way to foolproof something this massive before you know literally 500,000, 800,000 people or however many are playing at the same time can can do. So Larian's a history um, of this, right? Like for each of their big games, yes. they have the early access release. They have the quote-unquote final release. And then, enhanced. and they have the enhanced edition. They did it for Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2. And then they um, also, I mean, I don't know if they're doing it for Baldur's Gate 3. I feel like it's sort of set ahead of time. We're not going to do it. Right. Maybe they will. I don't know. Um, I mean, famously. For... They haven't. So that's the one weird thing. We all expect it, right? Yeah. Because they've done it for every single other one. But they haven't said it. Yeah. Which doesn't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> they fixed some bugs. They put yeah. out a big patch recently. I think like famously, they had such long patch notes, they couldn't actually include it in the Steam post because right. it was just too long. But I'm sure there's still even more stuff. And it seems like this patch has also broken a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah, uh, people were upset because there's this uh, chest of the mundane oh, yeah. that uh, apparently transforms like magical items into like mundane items like forks. And yeah. it was also shifting the weight of the items oh. prior to the patch. And people were using it effectively as a bag of holding to carry barrels and barrels of water or fire wine or whatever. And then just lobbing those infinitely at and foes. now they can't anymore. And now it retains the weight of the item, so you can no longer do that, which That's is a bummer. But and people actually thought that it was it was a legitimate feature because it's just and one it of those sort of quirky like D and D things where a seemingly useless item is really secretly powerful. Yeah, and it, um, it also feels like the sort of thing Larian would do anyway. Right, and that they give you yeah. something that's like this is kind of busted, but then hey, if you find this way to use yeah. it, feel free to use it. It's interesting. So, it's weird. Someone someone out there doesn't like fun. Someone's going to mod it again and switch it back to hell. Oh, you once. know they will. People are already mad about that. Oh, boy. So, I mean, understandably so. I mean, we'll probably have to wait. I think we have to wait for the dust to settle. And, like, I'm guessing Larian's going to keep patching it this entire time. And at some point... I think there's, like, four patches they have planned yeah, or something like that. Yeah, maybe in a year we'll be closer to something stable. And people can start releasing things to fill the holes in what's there. We'll have to um, see. But speaking of, of mods, you've been uh, continuing to... Uh, 
uh, dwell in uh, Divinity Original Sin 2 oh, that's uh, right. mod land. I've been messing around in Divinity Original Sin 2 because it's the closest thing to Baldur's Gate 3 that I know of. That is actually also like just enhanced and not under- busted as shit yeah, in Act 3. Under- <laughs> understand, I was also messing around with mods for the original Baldur's Gate games. Fair. This is true. There have been periods where I'll just sit down and say, all right, I'm finally going to fix Baldur's Gate so it works exactly the way I want it to. It always takes so long, and I come back to it and I go, "Oh, I accidentally just deleted the long sword prestige category." See, this so is your why characters can never, like, can no longer like obtain proficiencies in long swords. When this I'm is why I do don't now. mess with mods. Oh <laughs> uh, boy, yeah. it's just honestly like just figuring out the right mod setup is like a game or like a not. I don't want to say a chore, but it's like a task in and of itself. I mean, it's like a fun way to interact with this it, stuff, right? It is. I'm not I denying th- that. Yeah, like I think. Um, I was telling Alex about this in the car earlier. When you have these computer role-playing games that are so complicated and have so many moving parts, there is no final form of these things. They're always just products of compromises anyway. So it makes sense to me to just have folks tweak it one way or another to say, I prefer it this way, I prefer it that way. There are some problems that come up because all these projects are like, they are visions that come from a couple different people and sometimes they don't line up exactly what the game was originally. So messing around these sorts of things is always a matter of thinking how what how do you think of this? How do you want to change it? And um do you positively or negatively affect the experience by moving things in one direction or another? Like for instance, for Division of the Original Sin 2, um there's a particular system where your characters have these levels of armor, like physical and magical armor, where in order to inflict status effects on them, you have to break the armor. So, for instance, if you want to stun a character, you need to destroy their physical armor first. Or if you want to poison, you have to destroy their magic armor. The way this plays out in practice is that the way to most efficiently min-max the game is to just have a full team that does one kind of damage or the other. But that sort of deprives you, in a sense, of the fun of like sniping individual characters, saying, All right. Or using other characters, yeah. Or saying, yeah. like, I'm going to get rid of their magic armor on one side, I'm going to get rid of their physical armor on the other side. Like, that's like a strategic concern that I guess you miss out on if you just have everyone be the strongest. So there's like been a couple different people who've tried to solve this problem. There's one famous mod I was using, just got rid of the armor entirely or like made it a static reduction rather than something you had to break through and sort of said, okay, now you can Mm. use whatever kind of party you want. And for some time I was happy with that, but then I realized like, actually it, so one thing this mod does is it just gets rid of all stun status effects and makes them different degrees of stat reduction. So instead of stunning someone, you like reduce their movement and reduce their attack by 30% or something. But then you think, you know, as frustrating as it is to sit there and wait, while your character is stunned, it feels way better to stun one of the enemies than it does to just inflict a 30% damage reduction on them. It just isn't fair. Yeah. yeah. So but see this, this goes to show you that when you remove one thread, one mechanical true. thread, you're just creating other problems without yeah. realizing it sometimes. And I think, you know, a lot of folks who think about this stuff, they often do get tunnel vision in that way. They'll say, this That's really true. bugs me. Yeah. So they'll go and try to fix it. They introduce other problems and try to fix those problems. That introduces more problems. So they end up with something that's a compromise in that way. Right. Where it gets closer to what they want, but it can never get there entirely. I think I ended up going with another mod that keeps a lot of these vanilla systems, but still has some small fixes. And I feel like that and also like getting rid of a lot of the stuff I was using to bring it more back to what the base was helps me like understand how to mess around with this thing. 
So that's been fun. But then, of course, the problem is when there's these mods that are developed to let your characters have more complicated builds, then you start going, oh, no, maybe I should build my character this way. <laughs> then you have another problem because you can't get out of that either. You're stuck in this death loop. <laughs> and just then like you in will Baldur's never play the game. <laughs> You're constantly going around and around doing the beginning right. over and over because you can never say, this This just doesn't feel right. I have to try it again with a different character. I mean, it's the worst. And I will say that's sort of, sort of the, de- the death knell of me actually persevering with Baldur's Gate 3 is that I will finish the game. Yeah. And I don't know if I will have the energy to go and play really? it again when it's maybe properly enhanced and complete. Isn't the fun of these sorts of things, though, that you can say, all right, I went through as a rogue, and now I want to oh, do it as a sorcerer sure. or something. But there's other things I'm going to want to play, so will I feel strongly enough by then to go back? I but don't just know. think, Alex, you could spend the rest of your year know. playing this game. I mean, you know, Instead you of could picking up Armored Core Six. Oh, I whatever. am so tempted to pick up Armored, armored Core, Core Six. Armored Core Six is supposed to be really good. I am so tempted, but you could also just—I mean, I'm, I am curious to see when Baldur's Gate Three is is going to reach a state where it feels like most of the holes are patched up. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it could be worse. We'll like, it doesn't seem like a total disaster, and I've seen oh, a couple people who have yeah. gotten lucky, and it seems like they've gone in the end without make no mistake i will get to the end i i think this is a finishable game and a satisfyingly finishable game yeah there are just very obvious things that have gone not quite as intended in terms of like events like in the game that should have triggered but triggered weirdly incompletely and and i just didn't get content and it feels like it's really hit some people more than others which is really fascinating to me like i've to be clear i have had nothing that was like game breaking that required me to right. fundamentally just nix. Okay, that's not true. I might have had one game breaking thing happen, okay. but it was like minute enough that I was like, "It's okay. I can I can save scum my way out of this." Which is, um, this is gonna go really deep into potential spoilers, but um, there's a point in the game where you reach this uh, factory where they're manufacturing these uh, like machine oh. watcher like robot things. I see. And you want to turn them off because they're part of what's essentially being used by the bad guys to control the city of Baldur's Gate. Yeah. And um, in order to effectively uh, d- disable these machines, you have to free the like gnomes and they're, I guess they're, they're not all gnomes. Some of them are, are human, but mostly gnomes. They're like the technicians, the engineers that are working on them. And anyway, you have to do some stuff to basically get them on your side. But once you do, their leader is like, I will join you so we can go to the lower levels and disable these things. Yeah. Um, if you try to leave the factory at that point, he gets bugged and you oh. can't like he kind of just gets stuck in the entrance and, and nothing like there's no way to interact with him or get him to rejoin your party. So if you make the mistake of being like, I'm going to go rest right now you will not be able to do that which granted the game kind of doesn't want you to do at that point anyways but i figured out a workaround to to even just the thing of rest is so funny because on one hand there are like these quests that are affected where if you long rest you can skip through them but larian has also said don't avoid long resting because the less you long rest the more bugs the correct and that is actually exactly what has happened to me because there were there were times when i was playing the game very effectively right and i very clearly like did not long rest for too long and there were certain things that didn't trigger in the right sort of at the right pace for them to, yeah so i can 100 percent so it's see like that being the case it's this bizarre goldilocks kind of yes. thing because it's not even that many say okay i'll long rest all the time 
because the right. game does sometimes punish you if you long rest all Correct. the time. Correct. It's just you also don't want to be long resting none of the time. Which so you have to long rest just enough. That's the issue. But how do you frick? How do you know that? Like exactly. you don't. Which yeah. is they again. I can understand how from a game design standpoint they assume that people would long rest more, but they should have added some kind of catch-all filter where anything that you might miss in the long rest after a point just triggers it once. I guess it's the idea Somehow. of like maybe short rest every battle and then long rest once you're out of short rest is the That's idea. That's kind of what I've been doing, but I yeah. still was playing the game apparently too well. Interesting. You could also just kick the difficulty up. I, no, really that was to. that stopped being fun after a while. Oh, a yeah, hard mode stopped hard. being fun. Uh, or rough. tactician mode. Um, tactician I, mode. Yeah. For serious I honestly if I go back I probably will play it on tactician um for a second playthrough yeah. just because knowing the mechanics a little bit better and the encounters a bit better and what to expect I think I would I would not be as frustrated by because I think one of the frustrations you run into with tactician is not knowing what to expect having to continuously return to encounters to attempt them oh, right. in the perfect way you go to the encounter you know? every enemy is like i have the high ground and then kapow, kapow, exactly kapow, kapow. exactly or a hag being like oh look i have mirror images you don't know which one is me yeah oh like, no you have magic missile you could tell oh like if you don't you know? get to this character Whatever. in two turns the character will die and then I, okay. the enemy throws so, a single fireball, which critical hits and kills him immediately. Two highlights of Act Three so far. One of them is that there is a point in the game where you reach, you essentially stage a prison break from an ex- okay. from a prison that is about to explode, and you get six turns to Great. free everyone. That has been incredibly stressful, but also a lot of fun to figure out how yeah. to like get everyone out of there. Um, and it is probably one of the encounters that forces you to actually use some of the tools that the game has given you in right. creative ways that you maybe have not been forced to until oh, then. So cool. things like Misty Step or Haste Spells or uh, Potions of Speed, all of those things become critical at that point. And right. suddenly it forces you to think about how you might you know, get the most out of each turn in a way that maybe you hadn't thought of until then. Um, and the other is that there is a... You eventually get to a, to an encounter where there's a character that is, and I'm trying to do this as spoiler-free as possible, but is effectively immortal mm. unless you destroy three things in a room. And I actually uh, completely accidentally sequence break this or oh. broke this because I'm I'm a rogue that likes to sneak into everything. So I ended up so in you this. Went, oh, what's this? I ended yeah. up in this basement, and I was like, "Oh, look, a mushroom." I can destroy it. Okay, let's try doing that. Oh shit! There's a person that just came here being like, "Don't fuck with my shit." Yeah. And I mean, and anyway, that, that was the thing. It's true. And then I fought a person. <laughs> like the famous thing for Divinity Originals and you as well is, I, mean, I guess, with Western RPGs in general, is that you can go up to someone and have the whole conversation where you say, "I am the bad guy, and now I will kill you," or you can just kill right. them before they attack you. Right. Um, so, so the game still does let you do some of those things in ways yeah. that are very rewarding. And there, there's a lot in Act 3 to love. But you can also see the seams breaking. Right. More that in can Act barely 3. hold everything. Yeah. That's difficult. So. Well, I hope they fix it. There's another big patch which is coming out, right? They said patch yeah, 2 yeah, has yeah. some quote-unquote fan-requested things. And I oh, think they said they were going to fix the performance as well. So we'll have to see. I think Act, uh, act 1, uh, patch 1 already fixed some things. Yeah, patch 1 apparently... Uh, patched up some stuff so as you'd expect from something called a patch yeah but, yeah um, we'll see how it goes but still i still think it'll be my game of the year um 
just because of of how deeply I fell into its hole. Whereas I feel Tears of the Kingdom is one that um, I will go back to at some point and finish and really enjoy. Yeah. But it it has not obsessed me in the way that this. I has. still need to play Tears of the Kingdom. Maybe you, for Christmas. Or I something. mean, it's it, it's definitely worthwhile. If you like Breath of the Wild, you will like. I like Tears Breath of the, of the Wild. Breath of the Wild is magic. It's just it more, has issues, but it's, it's magic. Yeah. It's just more of that magic, and and it finds ways to surprise you that you didn't necessarily thought you yeah. needed. So. Okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about briefly? No, that's that's it. That's all I have. Okay. Maybe we can wrap up then. I think so. All right. Alex, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I, I've given up on the social medias. Uh, so the only place right now is sandcomic.com. Uh, that's where you can find my comics work. I actually will be updating that website soon to reflect some more of my you know, current work and upcoming work, um, some of which you'll be able to see at Small Press Expo. That's right, Small Press Expo area. coming up. Is it September 9th and 10th? And 10th, that that's is right. correct. Uh, at Very the Marriott soon. in Bethesda. In White Flint. At White Flint. Uh, no, it's actually called Nerf Bethesda now. Oh, it is? They changed the name of that station, yeah. That's good to know. I didn't realize. Hey, 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 okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, then again, I will not be there. Well, I, I will be there, but not tabling, but my collaborator, Aaron Lissette will be at mice, uh, end of September, beginning of October, which is the Massachusetts Indie Comics Expo. Very exciting. So. You can find me on Twitter somehow at W E N D E G O Wendigo. You can find me on blue sky under the same name. If you're lucky slash unlucky enough to have a blue sky account, which is currently undergoing its own social media convulsions, because, All social like, media big sucks. name, uh, <laughs> some big name users of Blue Sky have been getting canceled recently. It's been kind of messy. What what else has been happening? Oh yeah, I have a newsletter at anywire.ghost.io. No, The most recent piece I wrote for that was about why and how Vinland Saga season two's opening credits riffs, rips off the opening credits of Skyfall. And also why so many other anime rip off the opening credits of Skyfall? Like, why is it Skyfall? It seems to capture all these people's attention. Does the opening credits of uh, Inuyashiki borrow images straight up from the True Detective television opening credits? These are things I get into in that piece. Fascinating. Yeah, so I'll have to find out. What else? I guess, oh, I have, um, you can find me on cohost at cohost.org slash pig. So I'm still drafting stuff for that. I did another RPG Maker dungeon piece recently about Runa Fairy Tale of Forgotten Ruins. I've already written about extensively, but I thought for number 10, I should write about that game because it's really neat. We're we're getting a new version of that. I may have brought this up on an earlier podcast recording, but whatever, who cares? We've talked about Runa a lot. That's right. Uh, we will probably because no, no one else is talking about I know, it. Someone so until to. people finally start <laughs> talking about it, I gotta just bring it up at every opportunity. So, so you hear that, dear audience? If you want us to stop talking about Runa, just go play it. Please, someone pay me to write about Nepeshel oh, and yeah, uh, RPG Maker Dungeon Crawlers, please. Had world <laughs> and its uh, influence. It's uh, the influence it inherited from the Kingsfield games. Well, true, true. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, I think that's it. I think that's it. Thank uh, you all for joining. What do want to say to our listeners? Um, thank you for joining us. Thank oh, you for listening. Wait, wait. Hang on just a moment. But Maybe hang on a, a moment. There's a River's Edge quote for this. Oh, boy. Let's see. I'm going to cut out this silence. Um, oh, I know. They will never meet again, and they will gradually forget about it, just like how cuts and scrapes dry, scab, and form new skin. And they will never forget about it, just like a red, stretched scar how we survive in that flat field. River's Edge.